to This Witch Reads, a podcast about a witch's journey to learn about magic and tending to the soul through books. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you what I'm reading, what I'm learning from it, and how it influenced my magical practice. Maybe you'll discover the book I'm reading must find a home on your bookshelf too, or you might realize that some of the ways my magic is changing is how you'd like your magical ways to grow and change too. Whether the book I'm reading is found at my local bookstore, in the forgotten corner of my own bookshelf, or recovered from an ancient source, I hope to learn more about my magical path through the written word, and I invite you to join me. My name is Dana DuPont, and I'm an art witch, a moon witch, a word witch, if there is such a thing, and the host of This Witch Reads. Hello, my witchy friends. In this episode, I share what Harold R. Johnson's book, The Power of Story, on truth, the trickster, and new fictions for a new era, taught me about being a witch and tending to my soul. Before I get to the book, though, I want to share an update with you. In episode three of the podcast, I read Marta McDowell's book, Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life. I'm not sure if you listened to it yet, but the way Marta wove together gardening with Emily Dickinson's life and poems drew me in because I love poetry and I'm surrounded by women who garden, but I myself do not. As I explained in that episode, I'm a wannabe gardener or even more accurately, part of me wishes I loved gardening and working with plants. Unfortunately, I much prefer the stars and the plants and flowers I paint when I art journal with the moon. But my exciting update, exciting for me at least, is this, that I planted a garden with my husband. It's not exactly like the exciting plant, the exciting part. We've planted gardens before, but he's been the one who's been more excited about them, and he was the one who took great, much more uh, better care of them than than I myself did. I really didn't care too much about our gardens in the past until they were flourishing and the plants created kind of like this oasis on my deck and that's what I really cared about. I was excited about the atmosphere they created, not so much about the food we grew. I know, it's terrible. I wish I got more excited about these things, but I just don't. Anyway, my exciting update is the garden we planted has tiny shoots pushing out of the dirt and I got excited. I'm actually having fun watching the plants grow. It's a simple thing. And if you love gardening, then you probably think I'm describing something super obvious. But to me, it's pretty momentous. I have a genuine interest in the garden for the first time ever. All my years living on a farm and I've never felt the joy of wanting to grow anything. I'm crediting Marta McDowell's book for this shift. I started this podcast as a way to share my journey about learning to be a witch through books with you, and already two major shifts have happened. All the Dark Mother wisdom I absorbed through Demetra George's book, Mysteries of the Dark Moon, and through Cindy Brennan's book, Entering Hecate's Cave, caused me to change how I work with the Dark Moon in my art journal, and now, here I am, having fun growing plants. Who knows who I'll become after this podcast? Which brings me to Harold R. Johnson's books, The Power of Story, Untruth, The Trickster, and new fictions for a new era. If you've known me long enough, you know I'm a creative thinker, which means you ought to expect my learning 
how to become a witch or how to be a witch through books will be a windy, unusual path. If you don't know me yet, but are only just joining the podcast, you've been warned. I don't always read typical witch books to grow and expand my magic, and I don't always read typical spiritual books to tend to my soul. This is one of those times I veer off in an unexpected direction. I'm also not super thorough in my research for this podcast. My goal here is to pick up a book, read it, and experience how it helps me grow in my magic and how it helps me tend to my soul. I'm not writing a thesis. I'm not a book reviewer. I just want to have fun reading and learning. So I'm going to have gaps in my understanding from time to time. So expect that as well. I feel like this happened while reading this book. I don't know who the author Arnold, Harold R. Johnson is or anything about his background, and I haven't had the chance yet to really look further into it. I just happened to come across this book. I was in the bookstore looking for my next read for the podcast when I noticed this book saying, pick me, pick me. I picked it up, flipped through the pages, and came across the paragraph from Harold's wife. She explained how Harold passed away a couple weeks after completing the edits for this particular book. She described her husband as a gifted story storyteller whose last words are powerful and dedicated to all peoples. Upon reading her words, I immediately imagined myself in her shoes, my husband having died a couple weeks after completing what would be his last book. Writing a dedication under those circumstances would be so hard. Yet her dedication was touching and it made me tear up and her invitation to read the book drew me in. I had to learn more. So here we are, me talking about a book I read to help me learn how to be a witch and tend to my soul that has nothing to do with being a witch, but admittedly has a lot to do with tending our souls during these dark times. In this book, Harold explains the role storytelling has in building our histories, our identities, and the social agreements that structure our society. Even the way he structured the book was around story. It could have read like a speech, but he built built his thoughts around story and around a story in particular people from many different faiths coming to his home where he hosted the group in a circle around a fire. In the prologue, he explains how the book is what he said to them about the power of story while they were all enjoying the fire with him. He could have just wrote what he said, but almost every section of the book ends with a small paragraph where he pulls the reader back into the story of that evening sitting by the fire. He talks about the light at the end of the day and the warmth of the fire and preparing tea late into the evening when his talk was running long. I appreciated the way he did that. It made me feel like I was sitting around the fire with them, listening to his wise words. In fact, the whole reason I chose this book for the podcast was because of the story his wife shared on that page before the foreword, the story of a wife sharing her husband's last words. The book itself is short, but it's one of those books that says a lot in a few words, and it's the kind of book I'll be reading and rereading again and again. It was so enjoyable, except for like one section that triggered me. emotionally, but I'll get into that later because obviously that's my shit. Regardless of my own emotional issues, this will be a book I treasure for a long time. It's really good. It starts off in this way that was just really so damn lovely. Harold starts off by talking about land acknowledgments and how he was to offer his land acknowledgement a little differently. I want to share this part with you because it's really touching. 
This is his words. It has become common in situations like this to give what people are calling a land acknowledgement. Well, I want to do something like that as well. But I'm going to, I'm not going to simply acknowledge the people who originally occupied this land, my ancestors, the Nihita and our cousins, the Metis. Instead, I want to acknowledge the actual land we are sitting on. All these trees and that water over there and this grass, all the animals and the birds and everything else and the spirits of the place all are all part of a shared story that we indigenous and non-indigenous people alike are included in the land us the water the sky we're all part of one big beautiful story he then goes on to share stories about his grandparents and his wife and the river and he finishes by taking us far back to 10,000 years in the past when someone sat in the same spot on the land and flaked stone to make hunting arrows. I'll confess, I had to look up what flaking stone meant. My imagination could visualize someone sitting down fidgeting with a stone arrow, but I had to Google flaked stone to learn what flaked stone tools were that they were made by hitting a piece of stone with a harder piece of stone, like a pebble. This would remove sharp fragments of stone, which are called flakes, and those flakes would be used to make arrows or tools. So there, now, like me, if you didn't know exactly what flake stone was, now you do. Harold's stories of the land carried me to my own story of the lands I've lived on since I was born. I've always lived in this place that is now referred to as Canada, but growing up as a French white girl, I can tell you the stories I was told about the land sounded nothing like the stories Harold shared in his book. I remember in the 80s during my elementary years being told about the French fighting the English. I remember being told about the lumberjacks or les boucherons and how their way of life was celebrated and passed down. I was told about the St. Lawrence River and fur trading and about wagons rolling west and cutting down trees to build homes and clear fields. I remember being told about wood stoves and hard winters and starting with nothing but making friends with the indigenous people as if everyone in the past was happy and lovely. I didn't learn about fishing and trapping and living off the land, and I definitely didn't learn how racist our history stories were. In his book, Harold helped fill in some of the stories my white culture left out, like the story of how Columbus went looking for India because he wanted a new trade route to perfume and spices. Spices were needed because they didn't know how to preserve meat, and the perfume was needed because Europeans didn't bathe regularly, and they stank. So on page 51, Harold explains, So the main reason Europeans stumbled upon the Americas in search of perfume and spices is because they stank and their food was rotten and tasted bad. He had me laughing out loud at that one, and he explained how it's not fun to hear negative stories about your history, but that he understood because negative stories about Indigenous people have been told for a long time, like how they were backwards and childish and needed Europeans to save them. Growing up, that was definitely the kind of stories I heard in my church, family, and school. It's another reason why I enjoyed this book. He had a great sense of humor, which made it fun to read, and the story he shares are even when the stories are, uh, are hard to sit with. It's kind of him to like sparkle in a few laughs every once in a while. 
His stories also made me think of like my own personal history. I thought about how when I tried to learn about my ancestors, I could find information about a few of my male ancestors, but the only way to find out about my great, 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 great grandmothers was to read about their lives through the biographies of their fathers, their husbands, or their sons. Women's stories weren't written down. It also made me think of the journey I went on a couple years ago with my art journal and the moon to clear ancestral money blocks. I started on a Scorpio new moon and I started that journey by inviting my ancestors to join me and learning a little bit about their history with money. I then created a page in my art journal to sum up my experience. Some of this I explained in a blog a couple years ago. It sounds simple, but it wasn't. It was actually a really hard thing to do. I want to share a little of what I wrote with you because I think it fits perfectly with the Journey Herald's book took me on. If you could peer into my art journal, you would see on that particular page I created during this Scorpio new moon that there's a spider and her web in the top right hand corner. To me, spiders represent weaving the past and the future into the present to support me in creating the changes I want to see. The spider belongs on this page because I wanted to see changes in my relationship with money at the time. And just so you know, by the way, that moon magic totally worked. Money has caused a lot of stress in my life. I've lost sleep over it. It has carried more emotional baggage than it should have. It has caused stress in the lives of people I love. At times I've avoided trying to think about it, even when it was irresponsible of me to do so. I felt shame for wanting it. I felt shame for not having enough of it. I've blocked myself from earning it while at other times pushed myself to earn more of it. I've allowed people to deny me of it because I believed being a good person meant sacrificing myself for others. It's a tangled topic for me, but the magic I worked in my art journal during that particular moon cycle did help me unravel it. The spider was there on my page to declare that as my intention. The web holds the most important meaning on this page for me. I see it as symbolic of the interconnectedness of all living things, which is an intrinsic value I hold as an animist. One of the hardest things about exploring my ancestral past is seeing how my values differ greatly from my ancestors over the last 2,000 years. A great percentage of my ancestors hail from Normandy, which is a part of northern France that is on the coast right across from the United Kingdom. The area was fought over many times and was under English control many times. And at one point, Christianity enters the area. But before Christianity, Normandy's cultural experience was that of the Celts, Gauls, and the Belgae. This is important to me because it is the period when I most resonate with my ancestors' spirituality. 2,000 years is a long distance to travel to feel spiritually connected to my family. Celtic spirituality practiced a form of animism. That's far more my jam than the spiritually my more recent ancestors practices. Animism sees all things as alive and interconnected, as if a great spirit runs through all things and connects them all together. The way I see it, animism is a nature-based spirituality. I feel connected to my spirituality when I see the life force in all things and when I celebrate the changing seasons and the lunar rhythms and the movements in the night sky. At first, the spider web on my journal page represented this spiritual connection with my ancient ancestors. 
But after learning more about my ancestors' history with money, it came to mean much more than that. Before I sat down to do my moon art ritual at the time and create that page in my art journal, I researched my ancestors' history with money. What I learned could be summed up in the story of the beaver. Most of my ancestors arrived on this land in the late 1500s and early 1600s. They were here at the time when Samuel de Champlain was creating the colony that would be later recognized as Quebec. Some of my ancestors were even married in the first Notre Dame church that was erected there, and some of my ancestors were traders that lived on the bank of the St. Lawrence River. They would acquire beaver pelts and send them to Europe. Europe had a high demand for beaver pelts since it had depleted its own beaver populations to near extinction. Prior to contact with Europeans, it is believed that North America was home to between 60 to 400 million beavers. Despite its importance to the survival and well-being of the land and many other creatures, the North American beaver suffered the same fate as its European cousin. It was made into hats and accessories to supply Europe's demand for more, and, and it became nearly extinct. To hunt, kill, and use a part of nature in the name of fashion, trade, wealth, or profit to the point of extinction is cruel and stupid. But this is part of my story, and it is a story that continues to repeat itself. When it comes to my ancestral money blocks, I feel like that particular new moon ritual I did in my art journal asked me to consider what I've internalized from my colonial and capitalist past. How much land, how many people, and how many creatures get exploited in my desire to acquire more. More wealth, more land, more goods, more travel, more experiences. Do I ever stop to consider the people or creatures that have been exploited for me to have what I have. Acquiring more things without holding the web of life sacred seems destructive and ultimately ineffective. How would my ancestral money story look different if holding sacred the interconnectedness of nature and all beings was more important than acquiring things? Is it possible to have a relationship with money that is free of exploitation? I'm still trying to sort out the answers to these complicated questions, but what I did learn is the story of the beaver and how deeply interwoven it is with mine. I'm sure if I continued to dig deeper, I'd see that the story of the rivers and the trees and the birds on this land I've lived on are also interwoven with my own in more ways than I can even imagine right now. Harold's book helped me to feel that, though, the interconnectedness of our stories. On page 33, Harold writes, we become the stories we are told and the stories we tell ourselves. He then goes on to explain how our own life story intermingles with the stories society tells us. We have the power to change our life story and that can influence the stories society tells, but we must first control our own life story. Who do you believe you are? What is the story you are telling yourself? about yourself? What are the stories you tell yourself about your past? What are the stories you tell yourself about the future? I was on a walk listening to an episode of the astrology podcast about the month of June, and as they spoke about the upcoming new moon in Gemini, they, like Harold in his book, discussed the importance of story. 
Apparently the new moon in Gemini is a great moon to create under and one of the things we love creating are stories. Story helps us escape our everyday reality. Story helps us imagine a different future for ourselves. Stories entertain us. Stories teach us about ourselves. Stories can also help us locate ourselves emotionally and spiritually. For instance, on the podcast, Austin Kopic suggested asking yourself, what kind of story am I? And what kind of story am I in this time of my life? What is this part of my life about? And what kind of character am I playing? Maybe you have the kind of story you are in right now during this time of your life mixed up and you've been playing the wrong character. Maybe you wish you were in a role you are no longer in. I see this a lot in my work, actually, when a client is having trouble accepting the story they are actually in. Maybe the story is a story of addiction and it's time to be the character who hits bottom, wakes up and makes a change, but they're stuck believing a story that tells them everything is fine. Maybe they're in a story of health struggles and limitations, but they hate feeling limited. And so they decide to believe they're in a story where it's not really that serious and soon everything will be okay. They think they're in a different story than they actually are. So they're not doing a great job of the role they're actually in. Sometimes my job is just helping people see the story they're in. Once we are fully in the story that is currently playing out in our lives, then we can work to change the plot. When you're trying to deny or escape your own story, you'll lose the power to change it. So my friends, what is your narrative? What is the story you are living right now? And what role are you playing in it? I like to imagine that is what Harold would have wanted us to do, to see the stories we've been told, the stories we've been telling about ourselves, the stories we've been telling about each other. And if they're not working or they're unkind or they're leading us to destroy each other in the world, to edit, modify, or completely rewrite the story because it's all make-believe anyway. As I was reading Harold's stories, I realized there was one story missing in the book and in my life. And that's the story that I am safe. That is the story my body and my heart most want to hear, that I am safe. If I could truly believe that, I feel like the walls around my heart would come down a little more. If I could truly believe that, I think the cells in my body could relax more deeply than they have ever relaxed before. So many of my younger inner parts do not believe I am safe. There are a few reasons why so many of my inner parts don't feel safe. The first of which is I'm a woman and the story my society tells by the events that happen in it is women are not safe. Also, I was raised in an environment where my emotional needs weren't inquired after. No one asked me how I felt. In fact, emotions weren't even given much consideration at all. No one around me taught me how to identify my own emotions and no one inquired after my emotional needs. And the adults around me just pushed through or buried their emotions and expected the same of me. This is how things work. How do you know yourself and what you need if you don't know how you feel? How do you tell the adults around you that you don't feel safe when you don't even know that's how you're feeling? I'm also a highly sensitive person and an empath. Highly sensitive people and empaths tend to absorb more of the emotions and energy from people and places than other people. They also internalize the feelings and pain of other people and have a hard time distinguishing their own feelings from 
what they are absorbing from others. All those emotions that the adults around me tried to push through or bury didn't actually go anywhere. They still carried them around and I soaked them in without being aware of what I was doing and without being aware of how much it was affecting me and my body. The person whose energy and emotions I absorbed the most was the one who I was around the most, which was my mother. And that wouldn't have necessarily been a problem, except she didn't have her emotional needs met as a child either. So she suffered from stress, anxiety, and depression. When she was anxious or stressed or depressed, I felt scared. This is not her fault. She wasn't raised in an emotionally nurturing environment either. And society really still, especially the culture I was raised in, doesn't support and nurture mothers, especially back then. I didn't feel safe or taken care of, so I tried desperately to soothe and comfort the adults around me, or I chose to try to be invisible so as not to add to their stress. It caused me to absorb bigger emotions and energy than my nervous system knew how to deal with effectively. Because I didn't know how to manage the big feelings I was absorbing, I couldn't move them out of my body and they stayed stuck with me and I carried that kind of emotional overwhelm in my body for years. This did not help my body to feel safe. Another reason I never felt safe is because at a young age, I experienced sexually traumatic events and I dissociated from my body and emotions. I remember leaving my body and looking down at what was going on from above. I was dissociating from the experience because what was happening was too much for my little brain to process. As time went on, my brain started to respond to any stressful event as if it was traumatic. Dissociating and going into freeze mode became habitual. Experiences like running my own business and dealing with illness and heartbreak were not just causing normal levels of stress. My brain responded as if I were in life or death situations. It was an exaggerated response that shut me down, made me unclear, and hurt my body. Unfortunately, I was always trying to be a good girl and a good student and a good friend, so I never let any of it show. I just pushed through and ignored how I was feeling. I did it so well that no one knew I lived with chronic anxiety, stress, and a trauma response that was constantly triggered, including me. Since I started dissociating at such a young age, it was all that I knew, so it felt normal to me. But it wasn't normal, and it wasn't healthy, and it had catastrophic consequences. Anxiety and my trauma response kept me stuck for years, and I didn't even know it. And I see this with so many of my clients all the time. We see the physical problems like getting sicker, feeling unmotivated, having a hard time finding the energy we need to get things done and experiencing overwhelm to the point where it shuts us down. But we don't realize that the fact that we don't feel safe is causing so many of these physical problems. After reading this book, that's the story I want to spend more time believing. The story that I am safe. When I prepared for this podcast, I write about my thoughts. I write what I want to say because there's no way I can organize and remember what I want to say. I just sat down in front of the mic. I need my thoughts to be somewhat sorted before I share them. And as I sat down to organize my thought about this book, I realized my body was in a disorganized state and I was definitely not feeling safe. One particular story Harold tells was highly activating for me. I felt rage and my body was having a hard time digesting that emotion. As a person who lives with mast cell activation syndrome and POTS, my body just doesn't respond to difficult and intense emotions in a normal way. 
It doesn't respond to many things in a normal way. And the things it reacts to are so strange. I feel odd just talking about it sometimes. Like driving up and down hills makes my mast cells overreact. And feeling too hot or too cold or having an empty stomach makes my mast cells overreact. Especially strong reactions when I'm around chemical scents or when I eat any kind of sugar. So I can eat zero kinds of sugar. And my MCAS restricts me to a very odd assortment of foods. Living with MCAS, as we call it in my household, is a balancing act of managing symptoms while trying to ensure I don't experience too many triggers at one time. If I do, my body goes into an atypical anaphylactic response and my heart rate becomes erratic, which means it can climb to 200 beats, then drop right down to 40 beats, then skyrocket back up to 200 beats again within seconds. This makes me dizzy and I'm unable to breathe or function properly. My body temperature has dropped to hypothermic degrees in the past. My symptoms can come on fast and strong within seconds, and they can last for several hours or days. The problem with intense or heightened emotions is, for me, they can set a train of mick-ass symptoms into motion, including full body inflammation, atypical anaphylactic symptoms, as I mentioned, irregular heartbeat, labored breathing, brain fog, anxiety, chest pains, dizziness, flushing, swelling, (gasps) and a drop in body temperature, just to name a few. My body works much better when my nervous system is calm and regulated, plus I'm sure you've experienced in your own life maintaining a calm and regulated nervous system every moment of the waking day is impossible. Don't get me wrong. I've learned how to tend to my trauma response, and I use a variety of highly effective techniques like working with the MAP method and internal family systems and somatic practices that have improved my life immensely. And I finally know and understand my body and what it needs. So finally, after 10 years of confusion, suffering, and pain, I now live like 90% of the time in a strong, healthy state. But intense emotions like rage are one of the things that aggravate my conditions. So my emotions no longer go unnoticed by me. This book was wildly triggering at one point. It was in the chapter that began with the sentence, stories can heal and stories can kill. In this chapter, Harold shares examples of people who were made sick by a story they believed and examples of people who were cured from a sickness by believing a different story about themselves. For example, on page 87, he shares a story about a little boy. There was a young boy with leukemia who told himself a story about the lone ranger riding through his veins, shooting the cancer cells with silver bullets. He cured himself of leukemia. He then goes on to share similar miraculous healing stories and repeats the idea like the one he shares on page 89, which states, Every story we tell can heal or kill. You have to be very careful of the stories you tell. Now, don't get me wrong. The statement is not devoid of truth, but at the same time, it feels like bypassing big, important experiences of people who struggle with illness. It diminishes complex pain and suffering down to one problem with one solution. It's a little reductive, unkind, and frankly, probably a little dangerous. Not every body begins at the same place. People in able bodies struggle to see this sometimes. Physical health is complicated and conscious creation and the power of my mind and storytelling and positive thinking is one factor in a complex system. It's not the only factor. I don't care what kind of enlightened master I become or how well I master my mind. My body will not be exactly like somebody else's body. 
getting to the emotional root of my problems, rewiring my brain, positive thinking, and conscious creation are all a part of my healing, but they're not everything. There's so much more to consider. Sometimes, no matter what story you tell yourself, your body isn't well. That doesn't mean you're not being positive positive enough. It doesn't mean you don't have a strong enough mind. It doesn't mean you're secretly harboring negative thoughts in your subconscious. It doesn't mean you're telling yourself the wrong stories. Despite what some new age thinkers will have me believe, I am not the only reason my body struggles. There are much more complex factors to consider. People in strong bodies sometimes have trouble seeing what living in a sensitive body is all about. They reflect their experience onto me and don't really see me at all. My body has always been and will always be sensitive, period. No matter how much inner work I do or how strong my ability to heal my mind is or what story I tell myself. Many people don't know how to be with that. I didn't know how to be with that for many years. I've been conditioned to think the baseline for wellness is a certain kind of body that is strong and resilient, but that's not my baseline. I was never meant, that was never meant to be my baseline. I think my spirit maybe chose a more sensitive baseline for a reason. And it sucks sometimes, and I have to learn to manage things differently than most people I know, but no amount of willpower or healing will change my body at its core. My body's idea of strength and health is different than somebody else's body. It doesn't have more needs or it's, it isn't more sensitive because I'm not strong in my mind or I don't do my inner work or I'm not addressing my emotional wounds or I'm telling myself a story of sensitivity. And so that's what I'll experience. It's sensitive and has more needs because that's how it was made. It's supposed to be this way. A thousand things also contributed to my sensitivities. Some of them are genetic. Some of them are rooted in trauma. Some of them are environmental. Some of them are a consequence of living in a society that isn't well and allows toxic substances to permeate my air, food, and water. And some of them, I believe, are rooted in my spirit's desire to experience this kind of body. Don't misunderstand me. Doing my inner work, addressing my emotional wounds, and coming into alignment with my body will support me, and I will continue to change and grow and improve. But... This is my reality and it's not wrong or bad, nor does it mean I'm less effective at my inner work or that I'm telling myself the wrong story. It reminds me of the times I sought out support for the way my body was putting on weight and the advice I received over and over and over boiled down to one story. Calories in and calories out. It's laughable to me now how ridiculously reductive that is. For some people, it's nowhere near that simple. For many people, it is. And it's usually those people who cannot see how it could be different or how a different story might apply. There was a whole history of conditions that led to my experience. And when the solution was reduced to one simple thing that did not work for me, change couldn't happen. People in my life who find that calories in and calories out works for them see me as someone who is eating too much or not exercising enough. Talk about being completely blind to my experience. I eat healthier and I'm just as active as most people I know. Reading that my experiences with my body can all be cured by telling myself a new story feels insensitive, cold, and dismissive. Now, does that mean I don't believe in the power of story? No, it doesn't. I do believe in the power of story. I also believe in something I don't exactly know how to name, but has a bit to do with complexity, nuance, surrender, and something along the lines of paradox and 
two opposing ideas being true at the same time. I believe I can heal my body by changing the stories I tell myself about it. And there will be some things that will never change and I will need to learn how to accept those. I don't always know which is which. And I don't believe I'm meant to know which is which. I think that's a part of the mystery. I am powerful and have magical abilities to create amazing change in my life. And there will be some things that will never change and I will need to learn to accept. No one outside my body can know which is which. That is between me and the mystery. And things do and can change over time. Right now, my body is telling me a story of trust and acceptance. For many years, I thought it was telling me a story about overcoming or mind over matter and willpower, but I was swimming against the current of my spirit. I also think reducing illness to an idea as simple as you're not telling yourself the right story is dangerous because it places all responsibility on the individual. We are shaped and affected by more than the stories we tell ourselves. We are shaped by the environment and each other and how cruel and ineffective would it be for the cigarette companies to blame the diseases their cigarettes caused on the stories smokers told them about themselves. If only you told yourself the right story when you were smoking, you would be fine now. It's your fault. What a convenient philosophy. Now nobody has to take responsibility except for the person suffering. Okay, I think I'm ready to get off my soapbox now because that was only one small part of Harold's book, but boy, did it ever light a fire within me. But now that I'm finished my ranting, I want to share my favorite quotes. And this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. I love sharing quotes with you. One of my favorite quotes about the power of story from Harold is on page 36 when he states, every thought you think is framed by story. I am story, you are story, the universe is story, and it all comes from the trickster. I love the trickster, and if you do too, you'll like a lot of stories Harold shares in his books about the trickster. A quote that made me think of episode two where I read Cindy Brennan's book, Entering Hecate's Cave, and I was deeply moved by the story she told of living with an open heart and a strong spine, was on page 45 where Harold said, The reason our stories have humor is because people put shields up in front of themselves. When we make them laugh, their shields come down, and we can slip in the message of the story. That's also why we sit in a circle. If we sit across from each other, the shields we hold in front of ourselves get in the way. The best way to communicate with someone is to sit side by side. That way, our shields don't block our communication. When we are in a circle like this, we are all sitting beside each other. We are all equal. How lovely was that quote? In the book, Harold had a great way of reaching into the past, but he also had a great way of guiding me toward the future. Like on page 59, when he said, we must be careful of the stories we tell. We don't know what impact they might have 500 years from now. I love that one. I love thinking about, ooh, wonder what I'm telling myself and how might that be affecting something far into the future. And on page 93, he really had me thinking about the shows I've been watching on TV when he said, after you learn to be careful with what you say, then learn to be careful with what you hear, what you listen to. You become the stories you take in, the stories you inhale, the stories you believe. 
As a writer and artist, I love how he helped me remember the importance of editing and rewriting when it comes to my life story. On page 101, he writes, Yes, a lot of bad shit has already happened, but no, it's not too late to change the story. It's not fixed. You can edit a story after it's told. You can go back and make changes, important, relevant changes. That's what editing is. When we edit a manuscript, we go back through the story and retell it using different words, better words. You can edit your life story the same way. It's not so much what happened to you as what you tell yourself about it. I love how he pulled that in to just help me think about my life story as I would sitting down to write something. And on page 108, his truth-telling was plain and clear when he explained, you get to choose all the characters in your story. If the people you surround yourself with pull you down, endanger you, or bring disrespect, you can write them out of your story. Yes, it's that simple. And a quote I think I'd love to see in my art journal or on a wall somewhere was on page 110 when he stated, don't let others write you in a bad place. I love that. I feel like I need to read that one over and over again. I'm not even sure why. It's just something I feel like I want to sit with. I also love how on page 111, he made me think of a story I want to be able to tell myself on my deathbed when he wrote, no, you don't know the details of the end of your life story. None of us knows the date, time, and circumstances, but we all know there is an end, and the end of your life story is just as important as the end of a fiction. It's a good strategy to be writing toward it all the time. It's that last minute that's important, that moment when you know this is your last breath, your last heartbeat, your last thought. In that moment, you'll be alone. This is what the entire story you are creating has built toward. If in this moment you have regrets, it's your fault. You were the author. But if in that defining moment you look back and say, I am satisfied, then you have written a masterpiece. And on another quote along those same lines, in, on page 112, he explained, Every one of our days should be good enough to die in. It takes an incredible author to write days that good. We have to practice writing those days until we can fill our life story with pages so good that endings don't frighten us anymore. There's a quote on page 115 I think would make a great t-shirt. It states, anyone who says they are not racist is full of shit if they are not checking their story every time. I can just imagine me wearing that one everywhere. Okay, another great t-shirt quote is on page 125 when Harold writes, I cannot tell you who you are. That's for you to decide. I think I'd wear the heck out of that t-shirt. On page 127, I love how he weaves our ancestors into the present when he says, remember what I told you about our ancestors' atoms in the soil? How the plants reach down and bring those atoms to the surface and animals eat those plants and we pick the berries off those plants and eat the animals that eat the plants. And so we have our ancestors' atoms in us 
That too is part of the story. Isn't that just so beautiful and poetic? And the quote that best speaks to my need to feel safe is on page 144, where Harold writes, you are whole and complete. You are plugged into the neural networks, the mycelia, the root systems of the forest. You experience and can translate energy and frequencies. You are repeatedly told by the spirits and plants and animals and insects. You are a beautiful human being. That one makes me tear up. And it makes my body melt. On page 155, uh, sorry, 145, he says something I think every witch should remember. You are in charge. Doesn't mean that you are abandoned, alone, and on your own. It means that you make the decisions and the spiritual forces that surround you will assist. They're your helpers. You decide where you want to go. And if you work with them, they will help you get there. Oh, thank you. I love that quote. On page 153, he says something I think every billionaire should have tattooed on their chest. What he says is, we have a huge web of story that perpetuates the suffering of billions to maintain the privilege of a select few. On page 160, Harold cuts right to the core of our problems by explaining the power of story of the story of economics. He says, if we don't tell our story in line with the economic story, we are not listened to. It has become the overarching genre of storytelling. I actually really love everything that he has to say about the economics and capitalism. And that part of the book is worth the purchase in and of itself. You really, if you're interested in it, need to pick it up just for that. And on page 162, he tells a beautiful story of unity when he he writes, we need to find a story that we can share, like we share the heat from this fire. We need to learn to live like family. He continues to deepen that sentiment on page 180 when he says, what we're all experiencing, white people, black people, LGBTQ people, Aboriginal people, is real suffering. The best way to alleviate that suffering is to create a new story. An inclusive story where no one is left out. When people see themselves as part of a shared story, they can relate to the other characters in that story. And finally, my absolute favorite imagery in the book is on page 102. And he says, I was given a powerful story about snakes. I really liked it. You know how some stories can make your skin crawl? Well, this snake story would make you want to tear your skin off, throw it in a pile, and run. So good it was. I really liked his sense of humor. Now, because that, my friends, would be a good story. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and my thoughts on Harold R. Johnson's book, The Power of Story. I also just picked up Juliet Diaz's book, The Altar Within. So that will be next up on the podcast. I can't wait to dig into it. See you next time, my friends. If you'd like to get the show notes and links I share in this episode, head to danadapont.com forward slash podcast. That's D-A-N-A-D-A-P-O-N-T-E dot com 
forward slash podcast. If you know a witch who'd love this episode, please share it with them so they can be inspired by the books we read here too, which is who read together, get free together. Also, so you don't miss the next episode, make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, leave a review on your podcast app. It helps me grow and improves accessibility to other listeners. Plus, my heart does a little happy loop-de-loop when I receive a little support and love. We all need a little more love in our lives. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.